In the Second World War, there was a very famous battle fought in North Africa at a place called El Alamein. And the German forces, the Nazi forces, had swept all the way through North Africa. And so the Allied forces, of which the Australian army was a very important part, uh, fought and defeated the German army at this decisive battle, the Battle of El Alamein. It took a couple of weeks in, uh, in 1942. At the end of that battle, back in London, Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of England, made what has become a very famous statement. He said, this is not the end, it's not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Right, so in other words, up until then, Hitler's Nazi forces had swept through Europe and they'd swept through North Africa, and no one had been able to withstand it. And everybody who wasn't a Nazi thought this is a very bad idea for the future of our country or our region. And so the question was, who would stop him? How could we get things back to what they were before he started doing all that he did? And so people wanted to see him defeated. And Churchill said, and history's proved that it was to a very great extent true, the Battle of El Alamein was a turning point because it was the first time that the Nazi forces had been defeated. But Churchill summed up its significance by saying it's not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Now, I want to suggest to you that that's a good way of thinking about the Book of Acts, and particularly the chapter, the, the section we've just read now. Because what we see here, thinking about the ascension, is the beginning of the end of the coming of God's kingdom. So Acts is a turning point in the Bible story, because the emphasis passes from what Jesus is doing while he's physically present to what he's going to do now that he's no longer physically present. So the book of Acts is a turning point. Now, get your Bibles, uh, keep them open in front of you. Um, I'm using the ESV. Um, so, the first three verses are like a, an essay plan in some ways. It's an introduction what we can expect to find throughout the, the, the book of Acts. Now, back in the days when I was a school teacher, I used to teach essay writing, and I used to teach sometimes kids how to debate or to make a speech. Now, one of the principles of writing or of making a speech of any kind is you need to introduce yourself and you need to then write or tell about what it is that you're on about and then you need to sum it all up. So introduction, body and conclusion. Well, one way of remembering how to structure a talk or structure an essay is that the introduction is the place in the essay or the speech where you tell people what you're going to tell them. And then the body, you tell them. And then the conclusion, you tell them what you told them. So the introduction, Luke tells us what he's going to tell us. And what he tells us in effect is that his book, the book of Acts, is a sequel. It's a sequel that he always intended to write. It's not something that he thought, I better come up with volume two because the sales of volume one have been so wonderful, I really need to cash in on the, uh, the wave. Luke had always intended to write a two volume work about the Lord Jesus and about his ministry in the world. So Acts is a sequel. So if you were to turn back to Luke chapter 1, you'll see a very strong parallel between how Luke begins what we call his gospel and how he begins the book of Acts. So go back to Luke chapter 1. And in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, Luke explains to Theophilus why he's written to him. So he says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first, eyewitnesses and servants of the world. We've servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, 
so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Now, Theophilus was obviously a Christian. We don't know anything else about him except that Luke dedicates both Luke and the Book of Acts to this man, Theophilus. He's clearly a Greek. We can tell that from uh, his name. But he's become a Christian. And Luke is saying, I'm writing to you so that you will know more completely the things that you've already been taught about Jesus. And so he wants, he wants Theophilus to be certain that the things that he's taught are true. So Luke says, I've investigated everything extremely carefully right from the beginning. I've even talked to eyewitnesses. And so Luke, the Gospel, is about the Lord Jesus. What about the book of Acts? Go back to the book of Acts, chapter 1, uh, 1 to 3. And Luke begins this one, names his man again. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. There's that bit of evidence again. So Luke says in the first one, I want to tell you the certainty of the things you believe. But now he says they're based on proofs that the Lord Jesus gave. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now look back at verse 1. The critical word there is began. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so we could say, if we were summarising, that volume 1, what we now call the book of Luke, is what Jesus began to do and teach. Because that's what he says. In my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So that suggests that volume 2 is what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. Does that make sense? If the first one's the beginning, this must be the continuation. But, if you bear in mind the reading that we've just had, we've got to realise that what Jesus is continuing to do and teach is done while he's no longer physically present. So that's very interesting. Now, next critical word, all that Jesus began to do and teach until... Until when? Until the day he was taken up into heaven. So in other words, until the day of his ascension. So the ascension is a critical marker in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus exercised his teaching ministry publicly and then more privately just to his disciples for the 40 days after his resurrection until he ascended. So the ascension is a critical hinge point in the story of Jesus. Now one of the reasons I don't think I've paid much attention to it, I think, is because I've seen paintings of it. And they make the, the ascension of Jesus look a little bit like sort of a science fiction novel. You know, clouds and angels and wings and, and people looking up. And so I, it seemed more like mythology than, than gospel. But that was my mistake because I was relying on paintings rather than the word of God. Uh, but nonetheless, we're told that Jesus physically ascended. This is a remarkable thing. Jesus has gone into heaven with his body. The disciples saw him go. Now, as I said before, the end of Luke, so if you were to read chapter 24 of Luke, 50 to 53, you can turn back there if you wanted. Um, really, it's a bit of a shame that John's in the way. Uh, I think it would be good if we tuck John up at the beginning of the Gospel, so we had John, Matthew, Mark, then we could have Luke and Acts, and they could be reading exactly the way that the author wanted them, rather than John tucked in between, because Luke and Acts are meant to be read together, uh, one after the other. But at the end of the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 24, we see a description of the Ascension, then he begins his story of the book of Acts with the Ascension again. So it's the hinge that Luke wants to include to join the account of Jesus' life with the continuing ministry he exercises through the disciples. Jesus 
preached and taught until he was taken up into heaven, until the ascension. His disciples carried on his ministry after that. So he gave instructions to these apostles, back to Acts chapter 1. He gave instructions through the apostles. Uh, after his suffering, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days. So for 40 days, Jesus was teaching his disciples how to interpret the Old Testament. Now up until that 40 days, the disciples, if you read the Gospels, they often didn't get it. They just didn't understand Jesus. He'll sometimes say, oh, you of little faith. It's almost like he's saying, like our song before, what more can I say? But it was only after the resurrection they really started to understand. And Jesus gave them the key to being able to interpret the, the Old Testament and to see him in all its parts. So he, he spent 40 days instructing his apostles, which means his chosen and sent ones. So these apostles were messengers. And what did he teach them about? Well, at the end of verse 3, he spoke about the kingdom of God. So that was his message. Luke summarises it. He just gives us this tiny little headline. Jesus' message was the kingdom of God. Now, that's a phrase that we need to investigate. What does it mean to talk about the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is a concept which has very deep Old Testament roots. And so the disciples, being people who knew the Old Testament, had formed in their mind certain assumptions certain expectations about the kingdom of God. Now there's so many places we haven't got time to look at them this morning. I'd encourage you to, to investigate the kingdom of God from the Old Testament in, in your own time. But a couple of places will do as well. Go back to Psalm 47. Read Psalm 47 verse 2. If you're new to the Bible, let your Bible fall open about halfway and it will probably come somewhere close to Psalms. So Psalm 47 verse 2. We read there, The Lord Most High is awesome the great king over all the earth. So, the psalmist acknowledges God as being a king, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. Why is that? Because he made the whole world. No one else did. Yahweh, the Lord, is the one who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And so he is the earth's true king. Now, they lived at a time when there were lots of kings in lots of kingdoms. But you can't have a king without a kingdom. Where is God's kingdom? God's realm is the whole world because he made it. Now, skip across to Isaiah chapter 49, closer to the New Testament, of Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 6. Now, this is one of the four servant songs of Isaiah where the prophet looks ahead to a day when Yahweh, the Lord, will send a specially equipped servant to minister wonderfully to his people. And that servant will be a ruler who will suffer he will be full of the Spirit and do God's will. But in Isaiah 49 verse 6, Yahweh, through the prophet, asks this question. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So people that knew and loved their Old Testament, people that have regarded it as God's work, people like the disciples, we're looking ahead to the day when God would establish his reign not just in Israel, but throughout the whole earth. And that is the kingdom of God. And of course, all this goes back to Genesis 12, when God made a promise to Abraham that one of his descendants, one of Abraham's descendants, would bring God's blessing to the whole world. So what's the kingdom of God? It's the establishment of God's reign over all that he's created. And Jesus preached about the kingdom. So he's preaching about the re-establishment of God's rule in a world that's been dreadfully marred by sin. It was the main theme of his preaching. 
So if you look in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, I'll read it to you, but by all means turn it if you can get there quickly. Jesus says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. So if you said to Jesus, just in a sentence or two, so much, what are you doing here? He'd say, I was sent to preach about the kingdom of God. That was the burden of his message. In Luke chapter 9, he sends the disciples, he's trained them, he's taught them, and now he sends them out to minister. And so in Luke chapter 9, we read, when Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. So the message of Jesus, the kingdom of God, was also the message of the apostles, his chosen ones. He sends them out to preach that God is going to restore his rule in a sin-damaged world. So that's the introduction to the book of Luke, to the book of Acts. But verses 4 and 8 go on and they correct some false expectations. Because you see, the disciples had built up a picture in their minds about what the kingdom was going to be and how it should come and all of those sorts of things. And Jesus has to correct a number of false expectations. And so starting at verse 4 and reading to verse 5, we read, On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. So he was eating with them. That's one of these proofs, because ghosts don't eat. One of the proofs of his resurrection, he was eating with them, and he gave them a command, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait. Now the disciples were probably champing at the bit to get on with re-establishing the kingdom, according to their understanding, but Jesus said, now that your first duty is to wait to wait until the gift that my father promised comes. And so we can sum this up and say that the apostles' mission was authorised by Jesus, but it was to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we're now starting to get a picture of what Luke means when he says, my first book was all about what Jesus began to do and teach. And so if volume two is about what Jesus continues to do and teach, by this stage, we should be getting the idea that Jesus is going to continue his ministry through the, through the apostles who will be given power by the Holy Spirit to do what Jesus said they needed to do, which is to preach the kingdom. Notice that he says wait. Who likes waiting? None of us does. And I think we're getting worse at it too, by the way, because everything's getting so much quicker these days. So I heard on the radio the other day, they were talking about the National Broadband Network. Is that sort of penetrated the map for yet? Or you've got a treat waiting for you who hasn't, let me tell you. Uh, we've got it in Druin, and I reckon it's slower than the old one. <laughs> and there's all these people, and I'm hopeless with computers, so every time something goes wrong with the computer, I think it must be me, right? And so when my internet takes longer to load, I automatically think, what have I done? Right? But I heard all these people who seem to know about computers ringing up on the radio the other day, and they said, no, it's hopeless. We're living in a time when we expect everything to happen instantly. I tap my fingers while I wait for the microwave to cook. <laughs> so do you. So. Um, first instruction Jesus gives to his apostles is wait. There's a verse in Hebrews 6 which I love very much. Uh, and it's talking to people who are thinking of quitting being Christians. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. And... Uh, it's that troublesome passage that leads us to wonder, is it possible to lose your salvation? But leaving all of those sorts of things aside, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, nevertheless, in your case, we're confident of better things, things that accompany salvation. And then he goes on and he says, we don't want you to be lazy. 
but to inherit. He says, but by faith and patience, to inherit the things that God's promised. So if you want to inherit what God's promised, it'll take faith and it'll take patience. And so Jesus says to his disciples here, who are championing the bit to get on with it, we'll see that in a moment, he said, wait. And sometimes God's answer is wait. Uh, I heard somebody say once, if you want to understand the principles of God's guidance, uh, three, three alternatives. Um, if the request is wrong, so if we ask God for guidance on something which is essentially wrong, if, if the request is wrong, the answer is no. If the timing is wrong, the answer is slow. But if the request is right and the timing is right, the answer is go. So no slow and go. At this stage, Jesus says slow. He says wait. And so they had to wait. So they gathered around him in verse 6. And they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? The kingdom to Israel. Right? So they're saying, come on, let's get on with it. Because in their mind, they've got, they're full of ideas of what they think the kingdom should be like. Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Probably what they've got in mind is concepts that we find in places like Micah chapter 4 in the prophets. And so Micah chapter 4 verse 8 says, As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. The disciples, the apostles had in mind that now that Jesus has been raised from the dead, clearly he's God's king, and Jerusalem is soon going to be the centre of a world empire where Jesus will reign and they'll be his sort of right and left hand men. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And what does Jesus say? He says, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know. Now that's also very interesting to us because there's lots of people, you find them all over the internet, who tell you that they're quite certain that they do know. Have you noticed that? I couldn't tell you how many times I've sat in church and have people come and preach who tell us, I believe the Lord's coming back very soon. I heard it before, coming up to the year 2000. I don't think we'll get to the year 2000 before the Lord returns. And they try to add all these things that they say are indicators. Jesus says, it's not given to you to know. So if it's not possible for us to know, going back to our three principles of guidance, if the, if the request is wrong, the answer is, well, why have it asked? If, God, if Jesus said to his disciples, you'll never know, why ask? Just get along with it. And so, uh, when they come together, they ask the Lord, would you at this time restore? He says in verse 7, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you, but you, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And here's their job. They'll be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. Now that there is Luke's essay plan for the whole of the book of Acts. Right, so it starts in, Judea, starts in Jerusalem, it branches out to Judea, it goes further to Samaria, and then it goes further and further and further. It's almost like circles opening out uh, until it gets to the ends of the earth and we find the end of the book of Acts, Paul in prison in Rome. And so Luke's indicating how, how the shape of the story is going to progress there. So Jesus says, wait for the Holy Spirit that, we've, that I've promised. Now if you start at verse 9, this little section here, if the preaching of Jesus, if the mission of the apostles is the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth, it's a funny way to establish a kingdom for the king to leave. Shouldn't you say? 
So Jesus departs. We find in verse 9 that he disappears. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now the ascension was necessary because Jesus now had an eternal and glorified body. And if he didn't ascend to heaven, then he'd be on earth and never die. But the disciples wouldn't really understand that their mission had to be taken away from him. It had to be conducted out of his presence. And so the ascension was necessary for the next phase of the establishment of God's kingdom to begin. So he was taken out of their eyes, taken up before their very eyes, a cloud hidden from their sight. And so Jesus, the king, has left the, the physical evidence of his kingdom. Now why would that be? Well, this is, I need you to go back again to Daniel chapter 7. Because there's lots of things coming together here that can only be understood from the Old Testament. Now, Daniel 7 is a landmark passage in the Scriptures because it talks about the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. Have you ever seen that song here? It's a good song. You just need to know it's from Daniel 7. Right, so Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, uh, the prophet Daniel is given a vision, and he says, In my vision of God I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples and nations of men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now look carefully at those words. If you were a Jew reading that for the first time, when you see a phrase, son of man, what that means is a human. It does not mean a divine figure. It does not mean a God. It means a human. So Daniel's looking and he sees God, the Ancient of Days, and he's surrounded by clouds, but he sees a human coming to God. So far, so good. But look what happens next. He's given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Now they sound like the sorts of things that God alone possesses. But this human is given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And we go on. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. Now for a Jew who believes in one God, to have a human being worshipped is blasphemy. Isn't it? And yet when Jesus is receiving their clouds, I wonder if the disciples have this in mind. Ah, that's why he called himself the Son of Man. Because when Jesus was ascended into heaven, he comes and he's given all authority in heaven and earth. And he says that in Matthew 28, when he sends the disciples out in Matthew's words, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth is given me. Go therefore and preach the gospel to all nations. Why does he say it? Because he's been given dominion, authority and sovereign power. He is the Son of Man that's worthy to be worshipped. And the ascension of Jesus received into clouds is a coded way of saying, you've just seen Daniel 7 come true. And so Jesus is beginning his heavenly reign. The ascension is essential for establishing the fact that Jesus is now reigning at God's right hand. Now, back in the book of John, in chapter 16, Jesus says, go back to Jerusalem, wait for the promised Holy Spirit. And the, the disciples would have been thinking, that's right, he did say something about the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16, very important verse for understanding our role in the whole business. John chapter 16, verse 7, said, Jesus says, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counsellor, that's another word for the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, 
I will send him to you. Now, according to Jesus' own words, if he didn't ascend into heaven, he couldn't send the Spirit. Do we need the Holy Spirit? Of course we do. Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem and the Spirit will come on you and then you'll be my witnesses. So the power to continue Jesus' ministry of proclaiming the kingdom comes to people who wait for the Spirit to be given to them. Jesus says, if you're good that I'm going away, unless I go away, the counsellor will not come to you. So, verses 10 to 11, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside the men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Now, I think I'd be sky-gazing too, wouldn't you? Right. They've just said, is, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And then he goes, and they're, they're looking. Two men in one come and say, stop looking. It's as though they're saying, get on with it. You've just heard what he said. Wait for the power to come in Jerusalem. You'll be my witnesses. So the two men in one are saying, get on with it. Start witnessing. Stop looking. Start talking. And how long should that take place? How long? Look at this. The end of verse 11. This same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Now how important is the ascension? It's not just a, a curious little story. It's not just sort of first century science fictional fantasy land stuff. It's critical for understanding the transition of Jesus' ministry as being a physical presence with his people on earth to a spiritual presence by his Holy Spirit that's meant to carry his preaching of the kingdom to every corner of the earth. For how long? Until he returns. The ascension establishes that Jesus is presently reigning. So where is Jesus now? He's in heaven. What's he doing there? Reigning. Do you ever think about that? Does the world look perfectly in control to you? Does the world look as though it could need a new coat of paint or perhaps a touch-up with a few walls here or there just to get everything the way we like it? Could you imagine a better world? You know, every three years our major political parties encourage us to imagine a better world, don't they? They tell us that the world that just been bequeathed to us by the previous incumbent is no good at all and you need to vote for me so that I can make the world more like you think it ought to be. So all of us deep down do know that the world's not as it ought to be or we wouldn't vote. But Jesus is going to come back. But in the meantime, he's reigning. And we need to start to get that into perspective too. So there are some lessons for us here. We call this the Acts of the Apostles. Luke didn't call it that. That's just the name that's been given to it as the Bible's been compiled over the centuries. The Acts of the Apostles. We could probably just as well call it the Acts of the Ascended Christ through his spirit and power apostles. The ascension is the hinge. It ends Jesus' earthly ministry in a physically present way, but Jesus' ministry now is carried on through his apostles in the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's Jesus' ministry nonetheless. Now here's a question for you. We're celebrating Mother's Day today, aren't we? That's a good thing, is it not? Yep. I can guarantee that there are churches around the place who are making more of Mother's Day than, than you are. No, 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 mums. But, you know, there's some churches who hear the whole thing, and then later on it'll be around Father's Day. So today it's flowers and perfume, and Father's Day it's 
I'd have liked some chainsaws. <laughs> Why don't churches celebrate Ascension Day? We celebrate Christmas, the feast of the incarnation, where God became a human being. We celebrate the Passion of Christ on Good Friday, the death, the burial of Jesus. We celebrate Easter, the resurrection of Jesus. Does anybody know when Ascension Day is? 40 days, Thursday the 25th of May, it's very soon. Right? It's a bit hard to get to church on a Thursday for most people, which is why it might have fallen out of the calendar. But I very respectfully suggest that Ascension Day is more important to celebrate for Christians than Mother's or Father's Day. And so in more traditional churches and in more ancient times, they had honoured Ascension Day along with Christmas and Good Friday and Easter Day and Pentecost, what the English call Whitsunday. Um, but Ascension Day, perhaps you'll spare a thought to the Ascension on May the 25th. But why is, why, is the, um, why is the Ascension so important? Because it teaches us some wonderful things. So here's some of them. Uh, it teaches us that Jesus is still seated at God's right hand. Uh, that's the hand of divine power. You can read that in Acts chapter 2. Uh, Jesus is reigning. You can read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <coughs> he is reigning with all authority. That's by his own words in Matthew 28. Philippians 3, this is a great encouragement to us, is that we're told that we'll one day have a body like his glorious body. Does that sound good? Yeah. If you're younger than me, if your knees aren't sore like mine, you probably, you know, you probably get on you know, the full blow of earthly fitness and it doesn't matter that much. But when your body starts to ache and you realise that you can't do the things that you used to do, the idea of having a new and glorified body starts to sound very attractive. And in Philippians 3, we're told that we will one day have a body like his glorious body. Do you realise there's a human member of the Trinity now? Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And the Son never forsook his body. And so we can say in a very real sense that the incarnation is not finished, it's continuing. So Jesus sends the Spirit. He said, if I don't, God, I can't send the Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the Comforter. We need the Counselor. We need someone to advocate for us. We need the Spirit to pray for us, as we are told in Romans 8. It's by the Holy Spirit that Jesus makes himself present. So is Jesus with us today? He is. I've heard people say, oh, we had a great time today, that um, the Lord really showed up. But whether you're having a great time or a miserable time, the Lord's there. Because he promised. It only takes two or three. So don't wait until you've got a, a band that can occupy the entire front of the, the building to, before you think about a great time. Right? Jesus is here. And he'll be with you if you're meeting in the rotunda down at the park. You don't have to be in four walls. Jesus is here because two or three of his followers have gathered. And he, it's a promise. He makes himself present. And he couldn't do that if he was physically present on earth, could he? It depends on the ascension for that to become possible. And what's he doing now that he's in heaven? Well, we're told in Romans 8 and in Hebrews 7, he is always interceding for us. And does that sound good? Are you grateful for the fact that Jesus, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, is presently interceding for you? Is, does that sound like a good thing? Yep. Romans 8 verse 34, Hebrews 7 verse 25, read them. You know, jot them down and read them at home and be encouraged by it. 1 John chapter 2 tells us that Jesus advocates for us. Do you ever feel a weak, miserable, guilty sinner? Do you ever feel like that? You must. 
if you're drawing breath. But if you have any sense at all of the gospel being true, and have any sense at all of your own condition, in 1 John chapter 2 we're told that Jesus is our advocate, which means he's the defence counsel in heaven's courtroom. He's speaking a word on your behalf. And as he does so, he pleads the benefit of his wounds. Because he took his body with him. And when John has his revelation of Jesus in, in, in the book of Revelation, he says, I saw one looking at the lamb as though he was slain. Jesus has carried his scars to him. But the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is the present anchor of our hope. So we used to sing that beautiful song, Now when you were anchor hold in the storms of life. Well, it's based on Hebrews 6. The fact that Jesus has gone from this earth and is now present in heaven, behind the curtain, we hold by faith on the rope which is anchored in heaven. And so Jesus' ascension is the anchor of our hope. And when by faith we grasp that rope, we know that where the head is, the body must follow. And it's the great guarantee that, that we will be raised one day. But Hebrews chapter 9 says that Jesus is presently waiting to bring salvation to all those who are waiting for him. So we need to be patient. Right? Jesus says to the disciples, wait until the promised Holy Spirit comes. So we need to be patient. We don't know when the kingdom will be restored. So we're waiting for Jesus to return. So what must we do? Well, we're people on whom the end of the ages has come. We could say that the book of Acts is the beginning of the end. Because Jesus has left, he's done all he can do, and now we wait. But while we wait, what do we do? Well, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we continue to be witnesses. Because we've received from the apostles and everyone who's been received the message, but we've received the same message. And so we must be Jesus' witnesses in the power of the Spirit until he returns. And here's the thing. If we won't be witnesses, if we won't ever speak the word on Jesus' behalf, what we're saying really is the mission can stop with me. I've heard, and that's enough, but the mission stops with me. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. He sends his apostles out to preach the message of the kingdom that will one day be established in the whole world. We've heard it, and it's our duty to pass it on. And so Colossians 3, verse 1 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So the ascension is very, very important, because the ascension is the beginning of the end of the establishment of God's reign on earth. Let's get involved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great good news of Jesus Christ, uh, crucified, buried, risen, and ascended. We believe that presently he's reigning with you. We, he speaks a word on our behalf. He, he prays for us. We, he sends us the, the Spirit to empower us to do his work. We thank you that he is the, the anchor of our hope. We thank you that uh, because he ascended, there's this guarantee that one day he will return. And when that happens, we'll make all things new. So we thank you, Lord God, for these, these wonderful truths. We pray that you take us from this place to live in the light of them and help us to be witnesses as, as Jesus commands. Uh, and help us to do all these things, trusting in you to, to uh, by your spirit, grant fruitfulness to, to any of our endeavours that we, we can extend on.